My name is Kieran Gary and I'm host of a new series of podcasts from the Irish Dental Association called The Whole Tooth. During the series, we'll be examining a wide range of dental and oral health issues which affect dentists in their working lives. Whatever the topic, you know you'll be getting the tooth, the whole tooth and nothing but the tooth. In this episode, we'll be talking to a business advisor and a vastly experienced dentist about what younger dentists need to watch out for when setting out on their careers. But first, I'm joined by Dr. Tom Feeney, a former president of the Irish Dental Association and a Dublin-based dentist with over 40 years' experience. Tom, can you tell me a little bit first about your own pathway into dentistry? Well, my own pathway was I graduated in 1975 from University College Dublin. I then took the boat and went to England and spent 13 years in England working largely in the NHS. Came back to Ireland in 1988, spent some years in the Navan Road in a practice there, then bought a practice in Black Rock and I'm still practicing there. And now winding down, I'm at the latter end of my career, but I've practiced as, as a general dentist during that time. Now, as well as that, I've also worked for, um, for the association. I was president. Well, before that, I was honorary secretary, became president in 1996. I was the representative on the Council of European Dentists from 1998 until 2013. Council of European Dentists is the interface between the practicing profession in Europe and the Commission. And it reviews all sorts of things that happen in Brussels. And it's, it's a very interesting thing to be involved in. And I enjoyed my time there. So I mixed both the clinical dentistry and work for the association. We heard some very interesting points in, in the previous episode from younger dentists. In your view, what are the main challenges from a clinical perspective when setting out as a dentist? Well, from a clinical perspective, I suppose the first thing is speed. Somebody who qualifies, and this is perfectly natural for all of us, when we start off, we know roughly what we have to do, but we're very slow. So when you come from the protected community of a dental school into the more solitary situation in private practice, it takes a little bit of time to build up speed. And that can be quite daunting in the beginning. You go from maybe having two or three patients in an afternoon to having a book of 10 or 15. And that takes a bit of getting used to. I think the other thing is time management. That, that's a, speed and time management have to be separated. Time management is how you manage your time and how you're efficient with your time. I think as a dental student, when you have a lot of time in your hands, you tend to be a bit inefficient. In practice, you have to really be efficient with your time. So they would be the two big challenges. What are the most common mistakes young dentists make? I suppose, going back to th- speed is okay, that takes time. Time management is probably w- one thing I notice with graduates when they first start, say, with associates that I've had in the past. They don't know how best to manage their time, so they get behind, people are kept waiting, they finish late, So, and that takes a bit of time. I suppose the other one I have noticed is kind of an exaggerated sense of what can be achieved with composite resin on front teeth. And, and, and this has been a particular hobby horse of mine. Everybody's taught about bonding and when they bond fillings onto front teeth, particularly class four cavities, they rely entirely on composite bonding, whereas the older dentist will use mechanical retention as well. And my advice for any young dentist would be use both. And as you get more confident, you can ease back on the mechanical retention, over engineer to begin, and then you can learn. But what you don't want is six months down the line, the patient you saw six months ago is coming back saying that filling you did for me has fallen out. And if that happens a few times, it can be very discouraging. And leads to more problems. When do you think dentists should tackle more complex problems? Well, I think it's, it's, it's like everything in life. You have to walk before you can run. Learn the basics, 
when you get a bit of confidence, and I know in, a previous, in the previous podcast, you were talking about the mentoring scheme, when you have somebody to guide you along the way, when you feel comfortable and confident in what you're doing, I think at that point, you can move on. But pick a case with a good personality. Because if you pick somebody, the case may not be all that difficult, but the personality can be quite complex and maybe of a nervous disposition. You're going to put yourself under pressure from the beginning. So while picking the mechanical case is one thing, I think picking the person behind the case is really important. What are the issues that arise for young dentists when, when dealing with patients? You're looking with the young dentist. I suppose credibility is the first issue. You have, say, a patient comes in who is used to seeing a practitioner with a lot of experience and suddenly they're faced with this person, as they say, barely out of short trousers. So how do they establish That's a bit themselves? That's ages, Tom. <laughs> but this is how the patient sees it. Uh, and they say, this person looks young. So the young dentist has to establish credibility. So... I would say to the young person, be confident. Above all, be nice to the patient. This is, and I'll come back to that in a moment. And always follow up. If you say to the patient, I'm going to write you a letter tomorrow, you write the letter tomorrow. If, if you say you're going to refer them to a specialist, you refer them and you, you copy them on the letter or you let them know you've done it. So follow up on, on what... It's amazing the number of times that patients, if you phone a patient, they will say, thank you so much for phoning. Because in the public... Generally, people just don't phone back when they're supposed to phone back. They don't return phone calls. So establish your credibility that way. But going back to talking about being nice, if you ever talk to anybody in the public and say who's been to a specialist or been to a hospital, what's the first thing they're going to say if you, when you ask them, have you been to see, to see Mr. So-and-so, the specialist? They're not going to say he or she was very competent or they had a very nice waiting room. The first thing they will say, he was very nice. So if you're nice to patients, that's half the battle, and it's really, really important. What do you think about the communication skills that younger dentists have? I think younger dentists are, are pretty good. I think, you know, what, f- from what I've seen, I think they're well taught in that area, and uh, I would have no complaints. What would you advise them to do when, when treatments don't work out? The first thing is don't beat yourself up. A certain proportion of treatments for every dentist for every year will not work out. That's just the law of statistics and law of averages. So don't beat yourself up. Be calm. Explain to the patient what's happened. Tell them how you're going to put it right. And in almost all cases, if it doesn't work out, inform them that there won't be an extra charge. And most reasonable patients will accept that. What they don't want is to be left hanging high and dry and then having to pay somebody else or pay you or pay another dentist in the practice to get it corrected. So two things, no extra payment and put it right. And if there's no meeting of minds and we're looking at a complaint, what's the best way to handle that? Okay, if if there isn't a meeting, first of all, you always try to sort it out in-house and try to do it early and head trouble off of the past. Don't wait for trouble to fester. Don't let them get agitated get it sorted out as quickly as possible. But if it can't be sorted, I mean, the obvious port of call is the the dental complaints resolution service that the Irish Dental Association provide. And that's a really important service because the one thing you don't want is going to full litigation because it's bad enough to go to litigation, but it's the time out of practice. It's the worry, it's the stress, it's the cost, it's everything. You just don't want to go there. So try to settle it in-house. The dental complaints resolution service through the Irish Dental Association, if that doesn't work, avoid the final final hurdle if at all possible 
In the previous podcast, we talked about the relationship between associates and principals. What advice would you have in that area? My advice would be, obviously, if you if you if you're going to work in a particular practice, try to go to a practice where there's a meeting of minds and that your views on dentistry are aligned with the views of the principal. I mean, if you start on that basis, it's a very good basis. I would say have regular meetings with that principal, set up a system where that your principal, if possible, can be your mentor, and that would be the ideal situation. I would say in every case you should have a contract not because you want to be looking at it every five minutes, but inevitably there will be situations where conflicts or disagreements happen or people are just not sure what was agreed in the first place. So the contract is more of a reference point than anything else. So I would say where at all possible, I would say in you know, pretty much every case you should have a contract. How can dentists ensure that, that they practice in an ethical manner? You, you know, there, there's a business pressures, which you alluded to there, that the business has to be a viable, um, they have to be up to speed. But how can they do that in an ethical way? Let's start at the other end. D- dentistry is a business, so you have to be solvent. You can't be ethical or unethical if you don't have a business. So you have to set up your practice that it makes sufficient profit, income versus expenditure, that you can actually provide the service in the first place. So that means having reasonable fees, and getting a return to allow you to practice. It's important. You see, you've got to establish your reputation. So if, if you do things that are unethical, you're going to run into trouble sooner or later, and it'll come back to bite you. So I would say give yourself enough room, enough profit margin to allow you to practice dent- the dentistry you would like to practice and up to a good standard. Not the most exciting subject, but it's important. Record-keeping. It's a very important subject. Record-keeping again, will come back to bite you if there's a litigation situation. And it's only if you have a litigation situation that you will realise and be so grateful to yourself if your records are accurate and reflect what actually happened. So my advice to any dentist is record everything meticulously. I think you don't have to write an essay about everything that's happened. I know some dental schools encourage their students to write essays. Personally, I don't think that's necessary. I think you can critically record the critical information. So if there is a dispute, it will be really important to have that. I think the other thing is to have having clear records. It's very useful for your reception staff because what will happen is that from time to time patients will phone up and they will query certain things and if the receptionist can look at the record and very clearly see what was done they can very accurately and quickly give that patient the information and it's a good selling point for your practice. What did you do outside of dentistry? You mentioned that you were very active in the IDA. Did, yes. did that help you in, in your profession? I think so. I think it, it just gave me an, another string to my bow. As I mentioned, I did a lot of work in Europe. I met a lot of dentists from different countries. I got to see a lot of places. So it was a, a welcome release from the grind of everyday practice. I think it added another dimension. It also made me see that the quality of dentistry and the way we practice dentistry in Ireland is up there at the very top. The one thing that's common to every countries they all complain about the state there is no country that's happy with the state and I would say that when you compare the situation we find ourselves in even though we might complain it's an awful lot better than a lot of countries what about dentists who you must have seen dentists who got into trouble maybe personal issues over the years how do you think dentists can avoid that Going back to the mentoring scheme again, I think the mentoring scheme is very important to have somebody to have a shoulder to cry on, to have somebody to share problems with. I think 
it's also important that if somebody dentistry is a very stressful job and can be very stressful you have to be many things you have to be a manager you have to be a clinician you have to be a peacemaker on on a regular basis you have to be able to manage staff you have to do a lot of things so that can be stressful and when things go wrong you can find yourself under a lot of pressure. So I think my advice to anybody is if you feel that the stress you're having is interfering with your sleep and it's outside what you would consider to be the norm, I think you should look to a friend or a mentor for some help. And if that if things get go on from there and get even worse, there is uh, an organization called Practitioners Health Matters, the Practitioner Health Matters Programme. And that's a very good uh, programme. It involves dentists, pharmacists and doctors. And it's there, it's very confidential they have a phone number and an email address and I'm sure the Irish Dental Association would only be too happy to provide it so there is help at hand but don't wait too long and finally what do you see as the new challenges that are facing dentists out there the new challenges I suppose in my lifetime the challenges were implantology computerization they were the big ones when I started practicing there were no implants there were no computers so they completely changed the the face of dentistry I think what's happening now is that you have the I suppose if I were to talk about two big challenges one would be digital dentistry digital dentistry is where everything's going we have say the CEREC machine and the construction of crowns in the surgery it's also extending to orthodontics we have 3D printing which hasn't really moved into dentistry yet but it's the way of the future and that will be coming down the line I think the other big challenge would be the corporates and how we cope with the corporates. It's certainly a challenge because it, it's a different way of doing dentistry. It gets away from the one-to-one rel- relationship that many dentists had in small towns and the high street over the years where uh, somebody's dentist might be their dentist for 30 years. That's not going to happen anymore. I think that's how that's managed is a big challenge going forward. And finally, finally, would you recommend dentistry to a third-level student or even a second-level student? Absolutely. It's given me a wonderful life. I've enjoyed my dentistry right throughout my career. I've done a lot of things outside of dentistry. Dentistry has taken me to countries and places I would never have seen. I've met people through dentistry that I would never have met otherwise. And I would, I've had a wonderful life and I would recommend it to anybody. Dr. Tom Feeney, thank you very much. You're very welcome. I'm joined now by Stephen Lynch, co-founder of MediCount Services, an accounting firm which specialises in medical professionals. Stephen, you've been advising dentists and doctors for many years. What's the most important first step an associate dentist must take from an accounting point of view? I think when a young dentist comes out of dental school, they are going to be earning a significant amount of money for the first time. So I think the first thing is understand how much you're going to actually earn, understand how much you need to set aside for income tax, because it can shock people when they come to me and they say, can you do my tax return? And I say, okay, fine, you've got you know, a significant amount of money to pay in tax and their faces can generally go white and they've no money saved. So they need to understand how much they need to set aside for income tax annually or monthly. I would always advise that they set aside a set amount every month, a particular percentage of whatever they're earning. You mentioned also to me earlier that it might be a good idea to separate personal and professional. Yes, that is a big problem when a young dentist starts off that they have one bank account. So they might, you know, socialise a lot. I have no interest in seeing how much they're spending on a Friday night in Café Unsen or the likes. I'd prefer to have a separate business bank account where all their dental earnings and expenses are being paid out of. Would it be a good idea to do some research on their new principal? Yeah, so starting off looking for a job, don't just take the first job that says, yeah, we'll give you a job. They should look who has worked here beforehand, 
Why have they left? We've heard from other dentists about the importance of getting a good mentor. It's essential. They should be looking for training. They should use their first and second jobs as a step up in their career as a ladder and learn and draw from the experience of the practice owner where they're going to be working in. What skills do dentists need to pick up for interview? When going to the interview, the dentist needs to be able to communicate, show that they can communicate effectively with their patients. So that means communicating effectively with the interviewer. In my experience, the highest grossing dentists will be the dentists who can actually communicate best with their patients. Dentistry is a learning. You need to be able to communicate and educate your patients. And, And if you can't do that, you won't succeed financially well in dentistry. How should dentists select an accountant? It's not like looking up the golden pages. It's how I would select a dentist or a doctor. I would ask for people's personal experience. So you would ask your colleagues what their accountant, existing accountant is like. Ask the principal where they're working. What's your accountant like? And generally, you should choose an accountant who's experienced with dealing with the, with the profession. Do dentists need more professional advice beyond accountancy? Initially, when a dentist is setting out, the dentist should be familiar with the associate contract. The Irish Dental Association provide a robust uh, dental associate agreement. If they wanted to get a solicitor to, to look at that, that by all means do that. An accountant for advising on if they're going to do any practice acquisitions, they should always engage the services of an accountant or an advisor. So in that regard, legal and accountancy are the only real professionals that they should look at. Um, what is actually are the main differences between being self-employed and being an employee? Two distinct differences. Being self-employed, you are financially responsible for your own self. So you're in business for your own account. Now, revenue have produced a code of contact, which helps determine whether somebody is an employee or indeed in self-employment. So it is a topical issue at the moment. It's extremely topical. The industry has always been worked on a self-employed basis. In 2012, dental hygienists who used to be considered self-employment were deemed to be actually employees because they worked under the direct supervision of their, the principal dentist. They can't work alone. But associate dentists can work alone. They can set their own fees. They pay for their own materials. They often buy their own equipment, like loops, etc. They pay for their own training. They pay for their own indemnity, training courses, members of the IDA. So there is a case, and a very good case for them, to be in business for their own self. They also would collect the fee directly from the patient. So they're engaging directly with the patient. They're taking the, the money, the patient fee income, into their own bank account. They have their own credit card terminals, for instance. So they can prove that they're in business for, their, for themselves. Whereas an employee would get a set salary, I suppose a, a base salary, and then get a bonus on numbers of patients seen or the, or the fee income base. So they would get a, like a, a commission-based salary. Is revenue checking up now to see whether people are self-employed or salaried? Okay, well... Our revenue checking up, I suppose, when I'm a, if I'm a dentist and I wanted to register with revenue for income tax, revenue don't tell me that I can't become a self-employed dentist, okay? I have perfectly right to become a self-employed dentist. But one of my clients, if they, if they were a principal and they had associates working for them and if they had a revenue audit, it would be part of the audit for me to prove that I have a client who has dental associates and it would be up to me then to address that issue of whether the associates are employees versus being self-employed. And often, and any audit I've ever been involved in, the dental associate, I've never had an issue with the dental associate being a self-employed associate. In, in broad strokes, what are the, the key priorities for a self-employed dentist uh, when preparing for their end-of-year returns? If they're an associate, supply the bank statements and their, their income-sharing schedules that they receive on a monthly basis. So the income-sharing schedule would, would contain information of the amount of private income they've done, the amount of maybe PRSI or GMS income earned in the practice, the labs, the lab fees 
and they break down the lab fees into the different labs that provide the service. And then the income share, the income sharing split, typically it's 45-55 in favour of, of the principal at the moment. So from an associate, it's very easy. It's generally 12 paychecks. If you're a practice owner, it's more detailed. More and more practices now have computer software. So there's a matching between what the computer software says the practice earnings are compared to the bank statements. And then you'd also have then the, the general expense of a practice, chiefly being materials, lab fees, uh, wage and salaries, indemnity, rent and rates. There's a lot more work in a, in a practice as opposed to a, you know, a dental associate. Um, you mentioned expense sharing there. And what's the difference between partnership and expense sharing? And which one do you think is better? So partnership is, is purely income and expense sharing. So if you're in partnership with somebody, it's like a safety net. You're sharing all the income and sharing all the costs. Expense sharing is basically where you have two or more dentists keeping their own income but sharing the common overheads. So typically that would involve, the common overheads would be the rent rates, the common staff, the cross-infection materials, the utilities, the practice utilities. So I could be a dentist and I could say, right, I would like to work Mondays to Thursdays, take Friday, Saturday and Sunday off. I would still have to pay for my portion of the overheads. If the other dentist wanted to work seven days a week and use the utilities, they, they have a right They're to do that. To do. Yeah, I suppose the difficulty with expense sharing is that if somebody ever wanted to sell the practice later on in life, they might have to satisfy the, the remaining dentists or indeed satisfy the, the incumbent coming in to say, well, look, you're going to have to work with dentists A, B and C. And the chemistry may, may not be right. So it, it can be a harder, it can be a barrier almost to, to a sale or a buy-in. But is expense sharing more popular than partnerships? At the moment, yes. Partnerships is predominantly between uh, husband and wife type of arrangement. This is a big question. What are the most common business mistakes made by dentists? Well, you know, I was at a conference in the UK as part of the Association for Specialist Dental Accountants and one accountant was telling me about an experience one of his clients had whereby the practice had no systems. So the, the newly trained dentist bought a practice and was doing the work away for two or three weeks. And he got a call from his bank manager one night and said, look, you've bought the practice. I've realized there's no money coming to your bank account. Have you changed banks? He said, no, uh, I don't think so. So he went the following day, met the reception, said, what's the story with the money? Are you not recording any money? And she said, uh, no, I thought you took it upstairs. Um, <laughs> so he not thought she was taking the money and she thought he was taking the money. So I think... Having systems is very important in a dental practice. You should have an idiot-proof system whereby even how to answer the telephone, how to do general triage of patients, determining you know what, what's wrong with the patient, because it makes a first impression last. So you need to have systems. Everybody, if they're out sick, the next person coming in knows exactly what to say. Same with the nursing. You need to be able to communicate well with the nurses. And then, I suppose, from a financial and a purely financial accounting point of view, is not knowing the tax bill was so high. It is stark and shocking sometimes, uh, people's reactions. They've earned a lot of money, no uh, money set aside for income tax whatsoever. They end up getting massive bank loans. And it's just a cycle. They'll never get out of it. You know? And that was mentioned in the previous podcast, how when dentists are starting off, they don't have to pay tax for 22 months. Yeah, so to, to give you a very easy, a quick example, if I started off on the 1st of January in a particular year, I don't have to do a tax return until the October of the following year. So in that October, I'll come along and I'll be doing paying my income tax for the previous year. Plus, I have to pay what's called preliminary tax which is based on 100% of the previous year's tax liability or 90% of the expected. And if the money's not there, it can be what's called a double tax year. So you've, you've got tax to be set aside for two tax years. 
What about issues like uh, life cover and income protection? Yeah, essential. You know, if you can't work as a private dentist, you will not have any money coming in. So there are a number of products available on the market, which one of them is a very good product, which can give you day one cover. And then there's other income protection policies, which are if you're out sick for 13 weeks or deferred periods of work of up to 26 weeks, that's when they kick in. So essential that you have some sort of income protection. And then if you've got family, young family, it's essential to, to have life cover in the event of an unfortunate circumstance arising. Some dentists can be quite uh, creative when trying to claim expenses. You know, it, it, it only doesn't happen in the dental. Revenue do see on the audits, they will look at things like motor expenses. And, you know, a dentist doesn't need a car to work unless they're doing a nomadic visiting practice to practice. They work in a room with a dental chair. It is a red rag to a bull if an auditor comes in and there's vast motor expenses on a profit and loss account that dentists are trying to claim expenses for. Uh, again, it's, it's small money at the end. It means a lot to some people. We have lost clients over not being able to claim motor expenses, but I think they're better to err on the side of caution. Where do you think dentistry is going in a business perspective, from a business perspective, over the next 10 years? Yeah, I, I, I think Tom Feeney alluded to this in, in one of his points, corporate dentistry. I think we've been talking about corporate dentistry coming into Ireland for the last 10 years. It is in Ireland. Everyone thought that, you know, the squeaky dental practice would be extinct. I think Irish dentists have really upped their game. We're seeing dentists upskill themselves, doing a lot more courses. It's now very common to have visiting specialists come to your own practice. And this is competing with the corporate body who are able to give a full array of practices themselves. But the Irish dentist is, uh, has learned that they need to upskill and to invite specialists into their own practice rather than referring it all, all out. Finally, if you had three key messages to give to dentists starting out in business, what yeah. would they be? Number one is find a good mentor. They will learn an awful lot of, of, of how a practice should operate if they're in a good training practice. Number two is keep your personal and business accounts totally separate. And number three is always set aside enough money for income tax. So talk to your accountant, whoever that may be, and say, I expect to earn X amount in a year. How much should I be setting aside each month? Stephen Lynch, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure, thank you. That's about it for this episode. If you enjoyed it, spread the word and recommend it to your colleagues and other IDA members. You can subscribe to The Whole Tooth on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>